you, David, for reading that long passage, and I want to read the companion passages as well from Mark as as well as Luke. So Mark 14, verses 33-36. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And they said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And even though Matthew 26, 38, and 39 are the main two verses I want to cover today, I want to read Read as well from Luke chapter 22, verses 39 through 44. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And mean in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood, falling down to the ground. Let's commit this time to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you so much for this passage. Thank you so much for this account of Jesus in the garden and of this prayer of Jesus as he, as he prayed to you in such agony. Help us to understand what this prayer means and how we can apply it. Lord, the message may not be eloquent tonight, but the, or the messenger may not be eloquent tonight, but the message of these verses are the sweetest song that we will ever know. And I pray that we would be able to apply it and understand and grow. In your name, amen. These verses tonight, specifically verses 38 and 39 of Matthew 26, describe the culminating prayer of a surrendered life. And when I say culminating, as I'm referring to climactical, crowning, complete, supreme, ultimate. Surrendered, as in delivered, submitted, entrusted, laid down, yielded. This culminating prayer of this man who lived a surrendered life. And the first observation we can make that I want to make from this passage, these two verses, is the intense and the strong agony and sorrow felt by Jesus that night in the Garden of Gethsemane, as mentioned specifically in the the account of Luke. The culminating point of his earthly ministry has arrived. His last public sermon has been given, His last earthly Passover has been completed. 
His last meeting with the 12 original disciples concluded. And now it's his last night before his death. The scene has shifted. The hour of darkness is here. Jesus told the arresting mob, this is your hour, the power of darkness. This is the hour in which the power of darkness would be present. And the intensity on the mind of Christ comes out in his prayer. And we observe his opening words. In Luke, he begins his prayer simply with Father, a common word within the prayers of Jesus as recorded in the Gospels. However, in Matthew, he begins with my Father. And in Mark, it begins with Abba Father. Neither of those phrases are in any of the other recorded prayers of Jesus in the Gospels. He is addressing God the Father intimately and emotionally as he, as he prays in the garden. And we can observe not just in his address to the Father, but his posture as he prays. Luke simply writes that Jesus knelt down and prayed. Mark records they fell on the ground and prayed. Whereas in Matthew, it is described that he fell on his face and prayed. The intensity and the agony within the mind of Christ propelled him to prostrate himself before his Abba Father in prayer. And a third observation we can make, and perhaps the most well known about the things surrounding his prayer, is that we can observe the physical condition of Jesus by Luke's recording, that in being in agony he prayed more earnestly in his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. The subcutaneous capillaries of Jesus opened up and caused a condition of hemodiosis or hemodihydrosis where he sweated drops of blood. This rare but not impossible phenomenon of bloody sweating is often traced back to extreme mental anguish and stress. So this is no ordinary prayer of Jesus. Apart from perhaps the prayers of Jesus on the cross, this is the most intense prayer of Jesus recorded in the, in the Gospels. We think back to his other prayers. When Jesus was about to drown in the boat and his disciples were concerned about the waves, he simply stood up and said, Peace, be still. When he was dying on the cross, what was his prayer? His prayer was, Father, forgive them. But this prayer, agony. His, the suffering was written and recorded in the Gospels. That Jesus told his disciples of the agony and the suffering that he was facing as he prayed this prayer. What was it that caused such a profound grief in the mind of Jesus? The body of the prayer itself reveals the answer to this question in its first phrase. If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Jesus references this cup in his prayer and praying for it to pass from him if possible. When he says this cup, what exactly is this cup? that he's referring to. And once we understand the nature of this, of this cup, we can grasp the magnitude 
of his agony. For the student and for the reader of the Old Testament, if they would have been there, if they would have been present, and they would have observed the prayer of Jesus, they would have understood exactly the reference that he was making. Psalm 75, verse 8. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup of foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dredges. Isaiah 51, 22 refers to the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath. Jeremiah 25, 15, the wine of wrath. Ezekiel 23, 33, a cup of horror and desolation. Habakkuk 2.16 Because of the cup of the Lord utter shame shall come upon your glory. In the New Testament Revelation 14.10 The cup of his anger. Revelation 16.19 The cup of the fury of his wrath. This cup referenced by Jesus is a cup which, which is held by the hand of God. It's himself and his contents are poured out upon the wicked. The wicked, the contents of this cup are poured out upon the wicked. This cup represents the wrath of God being unleashed upon sinners in just punishment for their sins against the righteous and holy God. And now Jesus is here in the garden praying for this cup to pass. He faced that judgment the next day on the, on the cross. Contrary to what some may believe, the cross was not simply a physical exhortation for Jesus. It was not just simply physical suffering alone. When Jesus was crucified, when he hung on that cross, Jesus became a curse. And he became sin on the cross. As Paul writes in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on the tree. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake, he, became, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin. That Jesus was cursed by hanging, being hanged on a tree. That God made him to be sin, the man who knew no sin. In correlation with that, and along with this aspect of becoming sin for sinners, the dying Jesus was forsaken by his Father. It was recorded in Matthew twenty-seven forty-six that about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sephthanai. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is a direct quotation of Psalm 22, verse 1. Why was he forsaken by God? In correlation along with this aspect of becoming sin. The psalmist writes in 5, verse 4 of the Psalms, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. Habakkuk 1.13 You who are of pure eyes and to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Jesus was forsaken by God because Jesus was suffering the consequence of becoming sin for sinners. And as he prayed 
this prayer as he, as he prayed in the garden, this agony of what he was facing started to come out and came out in his prayer. It came out in his countenance. It came out in his posture. It came out just in his, in his, his words. And it wasn't just stated by him, but it was evident to the disciples, to those around him. And it was justified. This was suffering. This was sorrow that he was going to bear alone the next day. And it leads us to agree with the commentator who wrote that as his death was unique, so also was his anguish and our best response to it is worship. Secondly, not just the agony of Jesus in this prayer, but I want to examine the attitude of Jesus during this prayer. The attitude of being surrendered to his Father. You can read this prayer in Matthew 26, 39, and you can see very clearly the two parts, the petition and the surrender. The petition, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. But then the surrender, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. We get to these decisive moments, or seemingly decisive moments, important moments in, moments in our lives. And we may think, I should worship. I should pray. I should commit this decision or this moment to the Lord to direct and guide me, and then I can trust him with the results. And this moment as Jesus prepared for the cross, it was termed by someone as the most decisive moment in human history. And as Jesus was on that cross and as he prepares for that cross. And in this moment we read and we study his attribute of surrender. This attitude that he had of surrender. At the culminating, the climactical point of the life of the most significant man who ever walked the face of this earth, we recognize that this is not some isolated prayer at this moment of crisis in his life. Instead, this was a prayer spoken from the heart. This was his life blood. That the heart of Jesus beat for his Father to do his Father's will. From his coming, it was his, his desire in Hebrews 10, verse 7. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written to me in the scroll of the book. This was the life, purpose, and desire of Jesus. And it was expressed in various places in the Gospels. In Luke 9:51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. As the time approached for him to go to the cross, he set his face resolutely to go to Jerusalem. In Matthew 16, there's this dialogue between Jesus and his disciples about this man called Jesus. Who is this man called Jesus? And their conclusion was clear. He was the Christ. In verse 21 of that chapter, we read that from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples they must go to Jerusalem 
and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. But wait, the Christ will be killed before rising again from the dead? That doesn't sound like the Christ I know, thought disciple Peter. So he expressed that in his response. And the immediate rebuke from Jesus. Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Once again, Jesus, his attitude, his driving passion, his heart beat. I come to do your will, O God. His entire life encapsulated by our prayer tonight, not as I will, but as you will. And we can go on and study this and, and continue to read and we can realize that doing the Father's will was not a forced or a mechanical action on the part of Jesus. Jesus was not forced to the cross. He went to the cross to the cross with authority. John 10, verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 17 and 18. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it back up again. This charge I have received from my Father. I, I come to do your will. The heart cry of, of Jesus. And he was yielded to the end. Even as we read in verses 53 and 54 of Matthew 26. Jesus had these, word, these words for those who would fight his arrest. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled? That must be so. And this prayer brings out a significant side point of this evening. We can see the humanity and we can see the deity of Christ. As one commentator put in Gethsemane, there is no diluting his humanness. There is no diluting his humanness. As he prayed there, he was facing the full wrath of a holy God, and he was in agony. But this was no ordinary man praying to God. This was the Word become flesh, dwelling among men, the second person of the Trinity. And the Council of Chalcedon in AD 451 summarizes for us a description of this man praying in the garden. And I want to just read some of that counsel and the summary here that, that our Lord Jesus Christ is at once complete in Godhead 
and complete in manhood, truly God and truly man, consisting also of a reasonable soul and body of one substance with the Father, as regards, as regards his Godhead, and at the same time of one substance with us, as regards his manhood, like us in, in all responses, apart from sin, recognized in two natures, without confusion, confusion without change, without division, without separation. The distinction of natures being in no way annulled by the union, but rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person in substance, not as parted or separated into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten God, the Word, Lord Jesus Christ. Paul puts it much more distinctly in Colossians 2.9. In him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. That this man, this man who cried out three times, not as I will, but as you will. That he's praying from a place of humble humanity, and yet he is also praying, knowing that indeed, the fullness of deity dwells within him. What was the accomplishment of this prayer? What was the accomplishment of this life? What was the end of this surrendered life? Was the agony worth it? Was his attitude of surrender worth it? The accomplishment, the attainment, the conclusion, the triumph. The accomplishment of his life, the end of this surrendered life was victory. This same man earlier in his earthly life gave this promise. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now we can look back at the psalmist who wrote, Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Hebrews 5, verses 7 and 8. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Though he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Firstly, we can see that amid trials, there is help for the surrendered life. In the case of Jesus, some of that help was instantaneous. Luke twenty-two, forty-three, And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. In other cases, it may come later. It may come after days. It may come after weeks, months, even years of persistent prayer, of surrendered prayer. Are we not hopeless in the face of trials? Are we not weak? Can we not agree with Paul, who wrote in 2 Corinthians 3, 5, that we are not sufficient in ourselves 
to claim anything that's coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. Our sufficiency is from God. That every joy or trial falleth from above, traced upon our dial by the Son of Love, we may trust Him fully, all for us to do. They who trust Him wholly find Him wholly true. That He will never leave you nor forsake you. And what can man do to us? Second Corinthians 1, Paul again, writing about his, this account of his life. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Christ depended on his Father, and it led to victory. It led to exaltation. Philippians 2, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So Jesus, Jesus is there in the garden, and he's obedient, he's surrendered. He is ready to go to the death, his death on the cross. And what was the result of that? That therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The endless dependence, endless surrendered attitude, endless in this agony, even in spite of the agony that Christ achieved victory. 1 Corinthians 15, thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. The first Adam lived in the garden. The last Adam went to a garden. The first Adam sinned against God in the garden. The last Adam submitted to God in the garden. The first Adam brought death upon all creation. The last Adam brought life to all who believe in his name. Consider the saga of the garden of Gethsemane and its characters. Jesus, his disciples, others, we can see the contrast. We can see the contrast. Alertness versus complacency. Dependence versus independence. Surrender versus pride. Truth versus boasting. Obedience versus fleeing. Love for others versus love 
for self. Jesus, on the one hand, was surrendered to his Father. Not as I will, but as you will. Jesus waited on God in prayer. Three times he prayed that same prayer. Jesus avoided sin in the garden. Watch and pray was his admonition to disciples so they may not enter into temptation. Jesus pursued the Spirit's leading and he was faithful unto death in the garden and at the cross. The disciples, on the other hand, they boasted about their own abilities. The disciples slept instead of praying. Because of their, the disciples' complacency, complacency and pride, it led them into sin. And ultimately they sought their own safety by forsaking and denying Jesus. And there's words of Jesus that surrendered, waiting, avoiding, pursuing, surrendered to the Father, waiting on God in prayer, avoiding sin and pursuing the Spirit's leading, is summarized in an acronym SWAP, S-W-A-P. And this is used by many as a focus point for what God would desire of us in our daily life with him as demonstrated by Jesus in these verses. This prayer offers a stark reminder and the encouragement for each of us. For many, the command from Jeremiah 25, 28 will be true in their lives. And if they refuse to accept a cup from your hand to drink, then you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, You must drink. We have all been offered freedom from drinking of the cup that Jesus drank on the cross. And that freedom is available only if you believe in him and repent of your sins. Surrender to the lordship of a gracious father and you will be saved for eternity. But on the other hand, for those who know Christ, first we have a great promise. Hebrews 5.8 again. He learned obedience through what he suffered. But then, verse 9, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Once again, Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written... Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. But then, verse 14, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. 
Not just do we have these great promises of salvation and the indwelling spirit, but we have a great calling that Christ, that God has called us to. Joseph Tassan, one of the best known pastors in Romania during the last century, was a man who suffered much while he was under communist rule. And he was once asked the difference between commitment and surrender. And he replied with this observation, when you make a commitment, you're still in control. No matter how noble the thing you committed to, you can commit to pray. You can commit to study the Bible. You can commit to give money. You can commit to automobile payments or to lose weight. Whatever he chooses to do, he commits to it. But surrender is different. And he uses, in this quote, he uses this example. If someone holds a gun and asks you to lift your hands in the air as a token of surrender, you don't ask that person what you're committed to. You simply surrender and do as you're told. Where the example may fall short in the sense of salvation and God holding or not holding a gun to your heads, the illustration provides insight into this truth. That we are called to surrender to Christ and to live our lives in light of that. We have a great calling because as Tisson goes on to note, that the Holy Spirit's preoccupation is Christ in me. Christ in me. We are called to live out Christ, and we do that. We only are able to do that through the Spirit's help. And as we can see recorded in these verses in Matthew, we can see Christ living this out and demonstrating this in his prayer by being surrendered to the will of his heavenly father. And we are called to do likewise for those in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this prayer. Thank you for these promises in the scriptures that, that you will give us this glorious inheritance, Father, if we will believe in Christ and surrender to him. Help us, help us, help us, help us to do that, to live each day in light of your goodness and of your sovereignty. In your name, amen.